All right, hello everyone. Good morning. My name is Shruti and I am a co-founder of the Gainesville chapter of Contra COVID. And today we'll be having a discussion about the COVID-19 vaccine and certain developments and side effects and aspects of it that we thought were important to share with you all. And today I'm joined by Issa, Angela, and Hannah. And before we begin, I would like to ask you all to please introduce yourself and a bit about your educational and career background. Hi everybody, it's a pleasure to be here to discuss some science with you today. My name is Isabella Pena, also known as Isa, and I'm a Brazilian scientist. I'm from Belo Horizonte, Minas Gerais, in Brazil, the land of pão de queijo. Yeah. And, um, and I, I work in Boston, I work at the Whitehead Institute at the MIT, and I'm, I'm, I work as a molecular biologist, a geneticist. And on my spare time, I'm here to talk about COVID and help everybody understand the science behind the vaccines and the virus and et cetera. So I'll pass the word along to Hannah. Hi everyone, I'm Hannah Ananda Bugli Gomez. I am also Brazilian like Isa. Um, <laughs> I'm from Belo Horizonte as well, the land of Pondi Cage, very important to mention that. Uh, and I am a Harvard medical student. Uh, and uh, I also do some research at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, and I am the, one of the co-founders of Contra COVID with the objective of bringing information about COVID-19 to everyone. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here to talk to you all. I'm gonna pass my word to Angela. Hi everyone, I'm Angela Zhang. I am, sorry to break the Brazilian train. I'm originally from China. <laughs> I immigrated to the US. Um, when I was 13. And uh, I currently live in Boston and I work at Brigham and Women's Hospital in research. And so I focus on the social determinants of health for housing insecure pregnant women. And um, I, my background is uh, kind of at the intersection of science and uh, business. So I've worked in technology development and life science investment. And I'm really excited to kind of shed more light on how we're able to deliver vaccines from um, bench to bedside. Awesome. So thank you all for introducing yourself. It's really amazing to be joined by such powerful women in STEM. Um, so my first question right now, we are facing a lot of doubt and questioning of science along with the rise of anti-vax and anti-masking campaigns. So with the uncertainty surrounding the COVID-19 vaccine, would you be able to shed some light on how the mRNA COVID-19 vaccine was developed in the lab? Yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that, because it's true, who could imagine that in less than a year since the COVID-19 arose in the US and also in the world, who would imagine that those RNA vaccines, this revolutionary new technology, would actually hope to end this pandemic? And I understand why so many people feel so hesitant about that. Well, like who outside our science circle here have heard about mRNA vaccines before COVID-19, right? <laughs> so I would say, only a few thousand people that actually who tested the RNA vaccines themselves before COVID for all the diseases that, you know, there's a couple of vaccines being developed before that. And actually the story of the RNA vaccine technology is pretty old. Scientists have been researching and developing this for the past 30 years. Yeah, 30 years of development. Because, you know, in science, the breakthroughs of science, they don't happen like that, you know, in a blink of the eye. They take many years. It's years of building blocks and research and failed experiments and failed trials. And then Eureka, breakthrough moments. Yeah, so it takes decades. Every vaccine development takes decades. And somehow in the public, this perception has been kind of uh, wrong because it's not something that was developed in a year. So today I wanted to discuss this paper, this article that was published in the journal Nature Biotechnology called Messengers of Hope. And first of all, the vaccines used by Pfizer and Moderna that have been injected right now to roughly 100 million people in the United States are made of this modified mRNA vaccine, M it's as messenger, so messenger RNA. That come inside a little uh, fat particle. It's just like a little oil with an RNA inside. The RNA is a molecule that is like encodes for something. So we use the RNA in our cells to bring the message from the nucleus, from our DNA, to produce a protein in the cytoplasm. So the RNA specifically in those vaccines, they encode the spike protein, the message to make the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And the only mission of this RNA molecule is to get inside a few cells on your arm and instruct them to produce the spike protein. 
right after that, after they send the message, the RNA dies. So it's destroyed. RNA is a very unstable molecule. And where does the spike protein go? It, it's gonna encounter some immune cells in your body and trick them to think the coronavirus is there. So then they're gonna build up their response and learn how to kill the spike protein. This response that the immune cells are gonna build is in, in form of neutralizing antibodies that bind, mask, and destroy the spike protein. Or another form of immune response called the cellular response where T cells are recruited. So those types of responses that are produced here you know, from your immune cells, they're not forgotten because we developed something called memory immune cells. And those memory immune cells, they're gonna specifically respond to the spike protein next time it hits our body again. So the vaccines are actually a way to train our immune system without the use of a real virus, without causing COVID-19, but a part of it, a piece of the virus that does not cause disease and our immune system is gonna remember. It's like when you're learning how to ride a bicycle, you never forget, right? So the big challenge of the RNA vaccines is what I mentioned earlier. RNAs are very unstable molecules. And because the function of the RNA itself is to just simply serve as a messenger to produce the proteins and then it's destroyed, this is a hard thing to convert into technology, right? Because it's so unstable, it destroys so easily. So it's like those messages in you know, spy films that like they self-destroy. You know, it's <laughs> something like that. So the early attempts in the early 90s to inject RNA to produce proteins in vivo all failed. Nothing worked because the RNA would just destroy. The other problem that we had as well in those early attempts is that RNA is very immunogenic. Our immune system hates RNA. So the other protein with the, the other, sorry, the other problem with the RNA vaccines is that they're very immunogenic. Our immune system just hates it. As soon as our immune system sees RNA, they're like, let's destroy this. So they're not stable because they, you know, the molecule itself is not stable, but also our immune system would just react, overreact to it, like have a scan over it, cause a lot of fever, inflammation and horrible things. So this was bad. So the scientists had a lot of work to do, you know, to bypass all those problems. And as I said, this is a very old story. The first attempts of injecting RNA were in the early 90s, 30 years ago. Wow. So after many years chemically modifying the RNA molecule, precisely in 2005, two scientists, Kathleen Karikov and Drew Weitzman, discovered that some chemical modifications that can be done to the RNA to change some little pieces in the code that avoid this overreaction of the immune system and also make the RNA more stable. Instead of being destroyed in minutes, it would be destroyed in a few hours. <laughs> Result? they managed to see production of the protein that is encoded by the RNA that they're trying in mice after RNA injection. All right, so this was overcome in 2005, the modification of the RNA that makes it stable and less overreaction of your immune system, less scandal. The other challenge that was very hard to overcome in the science was to how to deliver this RNA molecule to yourself. So the RNA molecule is very unstable, and it doesn't cross the cell barrier. Our cells are made of fat on the membrane and RNA is a very polar molecule. It's like when you add water to the oil, they don't mix, right? So we need to find a way to mix them. And the way the scientists found, and that's the way that we use today, is a little lipid nanoparticle that is made of fat. So a little oil that carries the RNA inside. But the chemical composition of this little oil took many years to be developed as well something that also doesn't overreact your immune system, something that is stable, that allows delivery of the RNA. And that was the other challenge. Scientists tried everything, all sorts of liposomes, nano emulsions, polymers, everything you can imagine. But then the breakthrough came in 2012, when a company called Techmira produced a lipid nanoparticle that had very great success. And this was the basis of the technology that we use today. This really enabled the modified RNA technology by Drew and Catalin uh, to be delivered into the target cells and made possible the use of RNA vaccines and other therapies because RNA can also be used as a therapy, which have been tested in clinics over the past decade. So now in 2020, here we are, we see those vaccines in clinics being the solution for this massive health uh, problem that we have, the COVID-19 pandemic. 
So 30 years of technology led to what we see today, massive clinical trials over 2020, we saw those RNA vaccines being tested in a total of 70, 74,000 people in phase three clinical trials with impressive level of efficacy of 95% to protect against the symptomatic COVID-19, including the elderly people, including people with comorbidities, including people with different ethnicities, Latinos, Hispanics, Black, Asian. It works for all of us. With the real life tests that we're seeing now, for example, in Israel, we can see that, for example, the Pfizer vaccine, which is mRNA technology, has set around 95% efficacy against the asymptomatic infections, which you know means that it's successful also to, pre to prevent transmission. So this is amazing. It's an amazing technology. And this is really a step towards you know, getting back to our normal life if everyone vaccinates. Yes. There are other mRNA vaccines also being tested, such as the CureVac, Arcturus Therapeutics, and Imperial College London. And the reason why this article that I'm discussing with the history of the RNA vaccines is called the Messengers of Hope. As I said, the M in the RNA is messenger. It's because this technology, this new technology can really like change how we create vaccines, can change the future of vaccinology because any new virus that arises, any new pandemic that arises, we can rapidly develop a new vaccine. You know, we can computationally find, you know, targets and little, you know, that we can develop as a new RNA vaccine. And this could really bring hope to fight other diseases and future pandemics as well. How amazing science is. I think it's so science. important. Yeah, it's so important to emphasize that it has been 30 years, guys, 30 years of developing this technology. Yeah. And yeah. And it's finally here. It's 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 something to celebrate. Yeah. Yeah. What do we do next? <laughs> Thank you so much for that explanation and breakdown of the scientific development behind the vaccine. It's really it really is reassuring to know that the vaccine and this technology has been in the works for longer than the pandemic, way longer. Um, so now that we know more about the science behind the vaccine and how it was developed, um, Angela, with your background in science communication, would you be able to speak more about how the vaccine was actually approved and brought to the market and how this was done so quickly with the ongoing pandemic? Yeah, so, you know, like Isabella has been uh, emphasizing, you know, it's been 30 years in the making. And so, um, you know, that's a lot of research. And so I think the people's natural curiosity is, you know, how do we, how do we make sure that something is safe for the public, right? You know, results, uh, you know, done in the lab can be very different from what you actually see in implementation. And so the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration, um, reviews all of these um, uh, vaccines before it can actually be used in the United States. And it does this to ensure safety, purity, uh, potency and effectiveness. And in order to do this, they, you know, go through multiple uh, phases of clinical trials. And so I want to start off by talking about what the FDA approval process looked like before the pandemic and compare that to um, the accelerated process right now during the pandemic and hopefully address, um, you know, some of the, the worries that people have for this really fast timeline. Um, so before the pandemic, the FDA approval process was um, extremely long to say the least. Um, it took an average of 73 months, so a little bit over six years. And um, it was done in uh, six stages. And each stage is distinct in that, you know, one stage has to completely wrap up before you move on to the next. Um, and so these six stages are research and development, um, so that's when, you know, the preclinical trials vaccine candidates are identified. So, you know, a lot of the lab work that Isabella was explaining. After that, you have um, phase one clinical trials, uh, then phase two clinical trials, phase three clinical trials, manufacturing, and then distribution. And so research and development that typically... Um, is like Isabella said, a very, very long process, but the process of actually identifying the candidates takes about three months during regular time. And um, the phase one is five months. And during the phase one clinical trials, um, it's defined by a small group of volunteers. So typically 20 to 100 volunteers. 
And the main questions here during this um, phase are about safety. And so uh, they'll ask, is this vaccine safe? Um, does the vaccine seem to work? Are there any serious side effects? Um, how is the size of the dose related to side effects? And if there are no serious concerns with phase one, then we move on to phase two. And the emphasis here with each um, progressive phase is that the scale of the trial becomes larger and larger. So during phase two, you move from you know under 100 volunteers to several hundred volunteers. Um, and now there's a greater emphasis on the side effects. So they ask, what are the most common short-term side effects? Um, and how are the volunteers' immune systems responding to the vaccine? And again, another checkpoint at the end of uh, phase two clinical trials, if all goes well without um, major concerns, we move on to phase three. Um, and phase three, um, again, the scale increases again to hundreds uh, or thousands of volunteers. And now the questions are, what are the most common side effects? Again, is the vaccine safe? Is the vaccine effective? And how do people who get the vaccine and people who do not get the vaccine compare? Um, and if phase three is where a lot of um, candidates fail, um, and so you can imagine throughout this entire enormously lengthy process, it's extremely disappointing for both um, researchers, manufacturers, and the public when you know we've invested all this time and capital, and now it fails at the very last stage. Um, but once we past that critical point, we get, to, um, we get to manufacturing and distribution. And not to say that there aren't bottlenecks there, but it's definitely a, a huge, huge accomplishment to pass phase three. And we've seen that this year with uh, Johnson Johnson, Moderna, and recently with J&J. &J. Um, mm -hmm. Can so I give an example about the, the RNA vaccines on that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so for example, just to exemplify, you know, the phase three clinical trials, which are ginormous, right? And uh, so for the Moderna trial, which used one of the RNA vaccines that I was talking about, there was 30,000 volunteers. And the end point was to see if, you know, if 150 would get the SARS-CoV-2 virus would get to develop COVID-19. And, uh, and the efficacy target was 74%. So meaning that you know, from 100 people that get the virus and develop COVID-19, if 74 of those were in the placebo group and a little number of those were in the vaccine group, the vaccine can be approved. And for a surprise, we had the number of 94%, which means that from all the people that developed COVID-19, 95%, 94% of those were in the placebo group, not in the vaccinated group. So that's how they measure the efficacy. They look into how many people developed the disease, how many of those were in the, in the placebo, how many of those got the vaccine. And this indicates that the vaccine is, it has efficacy to prevent the symptomatic infections. Isa, yeah. I've, I've heard that you, you were one of the volunteers in, in yeah. the how, <laughs> how was your experience with that? I was, and I wanted to see how a clinical trial is done, you know, from inside, you know, because I never participated in a clinical trial. And it was actually phenomenal. I learned so much. So, and I was very impressed on the rigor, you know, how they closely monitor us and how they follow us. So I, I signed up for both the Moderna and the Pfizer trials because, you know, I was excited about RNA and I was like, oh, I want to be part of this new technology <laughs> and test this on my own body. And I was very excited about that. Never felt afraid because this was after phase one and after phase two. So we knew that the vaccine was safe. As Angela said, that's the main objective of the phase one and two. And uh, so I signed up and then they called me. So I went to the Brigham here in Boston to where they were testing the vaccines. And then we have like big questionnaires of health. And you know, at first they were excluding pregnant women. So they do a pregnancy test to see if I'm pregnant or not. I was not pregnant, so I can continue with the procedure. So I donated blood. So they collect blood from us before, during the vaccinations and after the vaccinations for about two years. So I'm gonna be donating blood for them every six months. So they give the injection and then they also give you an app where you monitor your symptoms every day and you measure your temperature, they give you a thermometer, they give you a pulse oximeter, and then you have to upload in this app every day, every little thing you're feeling, and you have to do your check, like you're having headaches, yes, no, you're having fatigue, yes, no, you have pain in your arm, yes, no, every day, and they're following us, 
30,000 people being monitored very closely, not only by the app, but they're calling us every week as well. Wow. So between the first and the second dose, that's how they they did to monitor this, the safety and the you know of the vaccine is to really like plot all the data of all the little symptoms. And one funny thing is that they observed that there was a lot of fatigue in the placebo group. Placebo is just like a saline <laughs> injection, it's nothing. But I think everybody's just tired of the pandemic. <laughs> so, <laughs> so on my first dose, I didn't feel much. I just felt the pain in my arm. So that was it. On my second shot, which was 28 days after, I had a lot more symptoms. So I had pain in my arm again. And I had a bit of fatigue, nausea. And in, in the night, about like 14 hours after my injection, I had a bit of chills, another bit of fever. It was not very fun, but I was fine the next day. So it was just a little bit of symptoms in the second shot. And, uh, and that they kept monitoring this, and all this is in the data presented to the FDA to get the approval. So those effects are considered just mild or weak. They are not life-threatening, and, and they can be tolerated easily. And the good thing for me on my case was that my husband had COVID a month later, and I never got it. I tested negative across the two weeks of isolation and afterwards as well. There you go. So that was very, very nice. So I recommend. <laughs> go yeah, for it. Like Ella said, um, you know, there's enormous amount of regulation and control at each step uh, during these clinical trials. And so, you know, it's not a rush process by any means. It's meticulous, it's um, precise, and it's considerate. Um, and, you know, Isabella gets at a really great point, and it's that we need representation in these mm -hmm. clinical trials. You know, I know that there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy. There's more general medical mistrust um, in communities of color, and a lot of people aren't willing to participate in these trials at times. And it becomes a vicious cycle because if we don't have data on how, you know, vaccines and other medications impact um, people of a particular ethnicity or race, um, we're not able to expand care to those populations. And so, um, you know, it's really, really important for us to do the work of building trust within communities of color to encourage them to enroll in um, these trials to, you know, dismantle a lot of the barriers to, to understanding their health. Mm -hmm. It is true. And uh, in fact, both the Moderna and the Pfizer trials, they slow down the recruitment to get more communities of color, because of course, the majority of the population in the US is white, Caucasian. So mm -hmm. they wanted to recruit more, you know, black, Latinos, Hispanic, Asians, and mm -hmm. see if we can increase the representation. And this is important because our genetics change as well. We, you know, we may have little, you know, variants in our genomes in specific ethnicities that affect the vaccine efficacy. So we need to see the vaccine works for everybody because we need to eradicate COVID from the planet. And that means this vaccine has to work for everybody. And we know that there's a lot of, you know, um, exclusion of specific races in healthcare. And we need to have more in inclusivity because this is important for everybody. Absolutely. And, you know, I think a natural question is, you know, with all of these considerations that everyone has been pointing out that, you know, how in the world did we manage to, you know, get this vaccine rolled out in, in 14 months? Um, and so I wanna kind of address how this accelerated process worked uh, during the pandemic. And so, like I said, um, before the pandemic, it was 73 months to complete and we've condensed it down to 14 months. And I wanna emphasize that we aren't skipping stages. We aren't skipping steps. Instead, we're having stages run simultaneously. So that allows us to prepare well in advance. And so again, no checkpoints are being skipped, um, no corners are being cut. And Great. so, you know, the process before, um, the research and development process um, and the phase one clinical trial together used to take eight months. And by running these two processes simultaneously, um, you know, we're able to cut that down uh, to only five months. And we're doing this by creating vaccine candidates immediately after the viral genome sequence is available. Um, we're using vaccine platforms developed for other diseases. So like Isabella said, the mRNA um, technology has been studied for a really long time and we're drawing upon that wealth of previous scientific knowledge to inform our development of this COVID vaccine. 
It's true. And, and also for the other vaccines, such as the AstraZeneca, the Johnson vaccines, all the adenovirus vaccines that we see in the market, they were also being previously developed for, SAR, for other forms of SARS uh, viruses, such as the MERS and the yeah. SARS. And we're building on that technology. It's basically just like switching the MERS virus to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Yeah. And then it really like accelerates the development. Absolutely. And, you know, that's how we're able to progress onto, um, you know, phase one and phase two clinical trials. Instead of running those two um, stages independently, uh, the FDA has been running them simultaneously. And so this typical 42 month long process gets condensed down to six months. Um, and we're doing this because, like Isabella said, a huge scale phase three clinical trial um, of so many volunteers. And this allows for rapid collection and earlier analysis of safety and efficacy data, um, including really demographically diverse populations. And um, we also began candidates um, earlier in the phase three clinical trials. And so, you know, we're anticipating roadblocks along the way, and that helps us to shave down a lot of the time. Um, and this is carried over into, um, into phase, uh, excuse me, into um, eventually manufacturing and, and distribution. You know, before it used to be, you know, we would wrap up all of the clinical trials and then we would start manufacturing and distribution. And a lot of that consideration is purely financial. You know, um, companies don't want to be dumping, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars into producing a vaccine if it fails at phase three. Um, but because this is such a, urgent time, you know, during this pandemic, we have the government, we have um, private industry, you know, we have government, everyone is involved in creating this vaccine. So we have the capital invested where we're producing these vaccines as we study them and so that we can roll them out as soon as possible. And so this has made a huge difference in us being able to, you know, condense this timeline down to an amazing 14 months. And so- yeah you know, again, really, really want to emphasize that we're not cutting any steps out. We're not, you know, cutting corners to, you know, and compromising people's health and safety. Um, the goal has really been to take all of this capital, um, human capital and, and physical capital invested within, you know, Operation Warp Speed, this, you know, fast track mission that America is on to get vaccines into people's arms and really harness all of that to move this process along. Mm -hmm. Nice. And to follow up with that, so Big Pharma has a controversial history of abuses, and especially in the past few years with the opioid crisis, it has really left a lot of the public concerned about this. So how can we trust these companies to have the public's in health in their the public's health in their best interests right now? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, I think it begins with us acknowledging that there is there are problems with regulation of pharmaceutical companies. You know, it's um, but I, I think there's also a problem with this very polarizing view of them as either good or bad actors, um, because the pharmaceutical industry is just one player in the life sciences space. You know, they work with academia, they work with government, um, they work with um, you know startups in really creating the ecosystem that helps us um, advance research and. I completely understand people's concerns. You know, just last year, um, Johnson Johnson uh, had a billion dollar lawsuit because they had um, exploitatively marketed carcinogenic baby powder to women of color. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're following on the footsteps of, of something really, really serious. And it begs the question of, you know, how do we, how do we build trust? And I think a lot of that is that we have this FDA approval process in place. You know, we have these checks and balances. We, we think about the government, right? We have these like three branches of government and they have, you know, controls and checks on each other. And it's the same way in the life sciences industry. Um, you know, pharmaceutical companies certainly have a lot of power, um, but they aren't the only players and there are, also, there are limits on them. Um, and so, and another important point that I wanna say is that, you know, right now we can't choose between vaccines. We can't say, oh, I want Moderna or I want, J and J, right? Um, and so I challenge everyone to think about, you know, how we think about regular flu vaccines. We don't think about who manufactures those flu mm -hmm. vaccines, right? And so um, perhaps it's useful for, for the media and for us to stop calling them Moderna and J and J and, you know, Pfizer, you know, um, at least in the public sphere, you know, we leave that up to the researchers and we kind of just say they're COVID vaccines and we eliminate a lot of the, um, 
biases and a lot of the misconceptions that we may have about the different pharmaceutical companies. Because again, I want to reassure everyone that the FDA, FDA has been so meticulous in this process. And so um, with this process, are pharmaceutical companies making money off of these vaccines at all? And has the, how has the government been involved with the vaccine research and manufacturing process? Yeah, so you know, it's, it's really important for pharmaceutical companies to be transparent about how they're profiting from this pandemic. Um, you know, we've talked about accountability you know, for a long time in this space. And most of the uh, manufacturers right now are currently doing what is called pandemic pricing. Now that sounds a little shady, but what essentially that means is that they're taking into account that this is a global pandemic and they are trying to advance the health and goodwill of everyone involved. And so what that means is that some companies like J&J will be producing the vaccine at cost. So they won't be making a profit at all. Uh, other companies like Pfizer and Moderna, they've scaled down what they would typically charge for, um, for a vaccine because they understand the need for vaccination for everyone to move our, our world forward. Um, and that's not to say that um, there isn't the potential for pharmaceutical companies in the future. Um, you know, we've talked about the possibility of booster shots and things like that. And so that's an opportunity for pharmaceutical companies to make revenue in the future. Um, and I think a lot of the times people are uncomfortable with how pharmaceutical companies profit and their you know, financial structure and incentive. Um, but I just wanna remind everyone that we have to give, um, we have to give players in the life sciences industry um, the incentive to innovate. You know, and if we remove a lot of those incentives, we do not have the diversity and the pr progress of scientific discovery that we have today. And um, with that being said, though, the government certainly um, plays an important role in, in regulating and also contributing to what pharmaceutical companies are doing. Um, so we saw Operation Warp Speed here in America um, during this pandemic, and that's where you know everyone pulled in resources to really move this process along. And a lot of the stipulations that the government you know, tied to their investments in, in these vaccines was uh, being able to have a certain amount of these doses allocated to them immediately after they are approved. Um, and so that's a really important count accountability aspect to make sure that, you know, vaccines are going to those who need it the most rather than uh, the highest bidder. Mm -hmm. Nice, this is very important. Yeah, so as with any vaccine, we are seeing some common side effects to the COVID-19 vaccine, for example. Um, and so what are some of these side effects according to the trial data? And what are we seeing right now um, beyond the trials in the public as well? Yeah, so as Isa already said, uh, those side effects are inflammation responses to a foreign antigen, right? So side effects are absolutely normal and they're an indicator actually that your body's doing its job uh, and on its way like to make antibodies and to be immunized against COVID-19. Um, so data from clinical trials uh, has already revealed that side effects are prevalent after, are more prevalent after the second shot compared to the, to the first dose. And, and it's, and, and uh, may typically last uh, a few days actually, not, not for that long. Um, <clears throat> So some side effects are very common, uh, both like Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. The, the number one is pain at the site of infection that it's about like 90%. And I'm sure that you, uh, you have had uh, pain at the site of infection with older vaccines as well, uh, which is very common. Like every time I get the flu vaccine, I get sore. Um, and uh, fatigue is also very common for the Pfizer vaccines, about 68%, and for the Moderna vaccines, about 63%. Uh, headache as well. Uh, muscle pain is usually more common with the Pfizer vaccines, about 60%. And uh, when compared to the Moderna, that it's like 38%. Uh, what else? So also joint pain. Uh, it's common. That's about like forty-five percent with the with the Pfizer vaccine and uh, twenty-three percent with the Moderna vaccine. Uh, uh, fever is more common with the Moderna, about fourteen percent, and then chills as well. Um, so I, when I got uh, my first dose of the of the Pfizer vaccine, I only got pain at the site of infection, like 
like uh, Isa mentioned about uh, her experience getting the first dose of the Moderna vaccine as well. Um, but after I got the the second dose, I did get some more side effects, which are pretty common after the second dose. So I also uh, had some fatigue and muscle pain and uh, and some chills with the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, however, uh, I took ibuprofen and they all went away like in the same day. Um, so it's just important to keep in mind that side effects are a response that your body is working and creating immunity against the virus. Yeah, and going off of that, I can definitely share my personal experience getting vaccinated. Um, I did experience those same fever, chills for a couple, couple hours and body aches, but after a couple hours of rest, it went away and that was only with the second dose. With the first dose, um, it was really just soreness a little bit more than the flu vaccine, but it was nothing that I couldn't tolerate throughout the day. Mm -hmm. um, and so going along with those side effects, I do have a friend who is concerned about anaphylaxis. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that there have been some cases of that. And um, my friend does have severe allergies. And so in general, what is happening with those who have experienced anaphylaxis and how common is this? And is this something that the general public should be concerned about when considering getting vaccinated? Um, and are there certain groups that should worry more about it? Could you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. Um, so let, let me explain first what anaphylaxis is. So an anaphylaxis is a life-threatening uh, re uh, allergic reaction that can occur um, after vaccination or exposure to an allergen. Uh, and it's onset, it's typically within uh, minutes to, to few hours. Uh, some of the symptoms of, of anaphylaxis are hypotension, so uh, low blood pressure. Uh, usually the airway closes, so you have like very, uh, we have difficulty breathing. Uh, and uh, some other uh, symptoms are like vomiting, diarrhea, and rash after exposure to the allergen. So, uh, and let me talk about now regarding like the, the, the vaccines, how common anaphylaxis is taking like the Pfizer Moderna vaccine. So the initial estimated reporting rates for anaphylaxis in the United States were 11 cases per million doses uh, administered for the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, and that trial was done in, in December uh, of 2020. And for the Moderna vaccine, about 2.5 cases per million. Uh, so only two- Very rare. Yeah, I know, very rare. 2.5 cases out of million, million doses applied. Um, so just so that you have an idea, this is less than your chance for being struck by lightning in your lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, there was a person that got struck by lightning in the Moderna trial, a vaccinated person, but really? it was concluded it was concluded there was no connection with the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> but the FDA has to report all the you know effects, adverse events. <laughs> so this is reported in the FDA document for the oh, Moderna wow. trial. <laughs> it's hilarious. But also <laughs> I heard uh, Hannah that all the anaphylactics uh, reactions happen in like within a minute after the injection, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's why, you know, when you receive your vaccine, you usually have to sit down for about like 15 to 20 minutes so that they can watch you and make sure that you're not having anaphylactic reaction. Because once you have it, it's, you can be treated, right? On site. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the treatment for anaphylaxis is an epinephrine injection that it's given in your muscle. Uh, so as soon as you have it, you can be treated and, you know, your symptoms go away. Epinephrine is, uh, is the gold standard treatment for, for anaphylactic reactions. Nice. Yeah. And I just want to add, you know, I think, you know, Hannah and Isa have done an incredible job of emphasizing this. Um, we, I think a lot of the severe side effects are kind of overemphasized in the media sometimes and overblown. Um, and it's important to remind that those are just singular anecdotes. And sometimes they're not even substantiated if they're directly connected to the vaccine, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so it's only when we have gathered all of these anecdotes that it actually becomes data, right? And so it's really important. I think um, a lot of the times we seize upon one, you know, 
news headline and then it suddenly blows up to become this really, really serious uh, misconception. And so um, again, uh, I want to emphasize, you know, trusting the data, trusting scientists who are, who have looked through this data, who are working with this data and can really speak to, um, you know, rare cases of anaphylaxis. Mm -hmm. Nice. That's a good point. For sure. Yeah. And so um, if any of you know, are there certain groups that should be more cautious when considering getting vaccinated, such as those who might have experienced severe reactions in the past? Yeah, for sure. If you've had uh, allergic reactions in the past, especially anaphylactic reactions, you should let your doctor know or whoever is applying the vaccine know so that you are more careful and uh, monitored after you receive your vaccine. Um, and so my next question is, after, rece after receiving the second dose of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, or the first and only dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, how long does it take to actually get immunity to the coronavirus? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so COVID-19 vaccines, they teach our immune systems how to recognize and, and, and fight the virus that causes COVID-19. And it typically takes two weeks after vaccination for the body to, to build protection or immunity against the virus. Um, so both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines require uh, two shots, uh, which is a priming, first a priming dose that, that's followed by a booster shot, right? Uh, and uh, as Isa mentioned, the interval between uh, Moderna doses uh, is 28 days. So you take one and then 28 days later, you take the second dose. And then for the Pfizer vaccine, is, uh, it's 21 days. Uh, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is uh, it's a single dose vaccine. Um, so and and but the company is also testing it to those regimen that with uh, two shots giving um, eight weeks apart. Um, but the results uh, that's a thirty thousand person trial. The results are going to be expected at some point in May. Um, and the single dose contains more antigen than the individual dose in the two dose regimen. But so far, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is a is a single dose vaccine. So uh, it is important to keep in mind that it, it's possible that a person could still get COVID nineteen before or just after vaccination and get sick because the vaccine uh, didn't have enough time to provide the protection that you need. So. Uh, people are considered fully protected two weeks after their, their second shot of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine or two weeks after the single dose of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. Um, so don't forget to uh, take, take uh, uh, all measures to be protected against the virus, even if you got one or two doses of the vaccine, wear a mask, uh, you know, if you're a health professional, make sure that you're always uh, wearing PPE um, when you need to and always uh, keep uh, uh, pay attention at the hygiene and washing your hands and taking all the measures to be protected and not transmit the virus to other people as well. Awesome. And so um, if we're able to go back and touch a little bit upon how the vaccine is um, how is the vaccine specifically being tailored towards communities of color? And um, if, Angela, if you could speak more about the health equity and vaccine equity issues that people are concerned about and um, what else we kind of have to touch on that subject. Yeah, I'd love to speak more about that. So, um, you know, I think a lot of what I'm thinking about with the COVID-19 vaccine is um, is tethered to my current work. Um, and so I look at the social determinants of health for housing insecure pregnant women. And so they really are at the intersection of um, some of the most serious uh, social and medical conditions. Um, and so, you know, I think, so just to define, you know, social determinants of health, you know, those are the factors, um, you know, beyond just medicine that really impact our health in terms of, you know, the places where we live, work, um, and play. And so uh, more specifically, you know, we take into consideration, you know, transportation access, um, you know, personal safety, access to primary care, um, you know, all of these co constitute part of our ability to access the healthcare system. And in the context of, you know, COVID-19 vaccines, you know, 
we have communities of color um, that are, you know, located away from, you know, these large max, mass vaccination sites um, and who often, who also, you know, struggle from, you know, medical mistrust, vaccine hesitancy. Um, and I think a really important point to make is that we acknowledge those fears as legitimate um, and we work on tackling them rather than kind of just brushing them off or, you know, it's really disappointing, but, you know, and, and for doctors um, who come across patients who do not want to uh, vaccinate, they actually put low medical literacy in their charts. Like that's the convention um, in medicine. And, you know, I certainly understand how that uh, just serves like a labeling purpose or a documentation purpose, but I think it doesn't get at the key driver of that medical mistrust. And it's that it comes from, you know, dec not just decades, centuries of, um, you know, unethical experimentation, you know, uh, exploitation and, and so forth. And so, um, you know, in terms of being able to make sure that, you know, the hardest hit communities, the really vulnerable communities are getting vaccinated, we need to work with um, and engage with community partners, you know, churches, uh, community leaders, activists, and those people who already have trust within their communities and who can speak to and inspire trust in others. That's really important. Um, and I, I really want to emphasize that, you know, a lot of the people who, um, who, you know, understandably are like, we have to get to, you know, a certain level of herd immunity and we should just, you know, create a mandate for everyone to get vaccinated. You know, um, you know, I completely understand. We're also eager to return to normal life, but um, I think having a mandate where we're forcibly, you know, holding people's feet to the fire and saying you have to get vaccinated is dangerous for communities of color. And I say that because, you know, I think you're, you're winning the battle, but losing the war because we have this really unique opportunity right now during this pandemic to work with these communities to you know, earn back their trust rather than just saying, okay, I'm not going to deal with any of the concerns you have. You just have to be vaccinated. And that's that, you know, because, you know, the next time we have, you know, a health crisis, a pandemic, you know, God forbid, you know, it's the fear is still going to be there. You know, it's, mm -hmm. you know, having a mandate forcing people and instead of getting, you know, to where they are, meeting them where they are in their lives and understanding where this fear is coming from, that's not going to fix the issue. And so we exactly. have this again, really unique opportunity right now. If we, you know, make good use of it to reach out these, to these communities, show that they are included in this effort for all of us to become vaccinated and return to, you know, safe, healthy lives. Yeah, and that's our goal with Contra COVID as well, to, to create this platform for, you know, science education, for, you know, we're going to have some guides in our website on how to get your appointments. And, you know, with the New York team, we have some flyers being delivered to communities and we want to help. So follow us and Soon in our website, we're gonna have some more news. Yeah, our website is www.contracovid.com. Uh, if you wanna know uh, more, if you, if you wanna know more information about uh, COVID-19 and where to get your vaccine, make sure that you access our website. And our website has uh, different languages as well. Uh, we have uh, in English, uh, Spanish, and Portuguese, uh, if you wanna access, uh, and Haitian Creole as well, as if you wanna access information in those other languages. Yeah, so in general, if say I wanted to get vaccinated and register, um, what are some ongoing resources for me to reach out to and like how can I get registered and who is being offered the vaccine right now also? So I can talk a little bit about this. Um, and so right now we're starting to see the formation of a national effort in terms of vaccine um, Low, you know, vaccine distribution, the CDC is building a tool uh, with, you know, backing of the White House to kind of get a more um, national effort to see, you know, which locations are offering the vaccine, you know, engaging, you know, big um, companies like CVS and so forth to make the vaccines more accessible. Um, but right now, a lot of it is still um, led by states. And so it will vary so much from state to state. Um, the best, I think, advice is to look at your your particular state's information um, because you know we're rolling out at very different rates. You know, I know in Texas, for example, they're they're far ahead of us here in Massachusetts. Um, and so, look for your state's information in terms of the eligibility. Um, and so that can uh, 
be in terms of your age and that can also be in terms of chronic conditions. Um, and so uh, while we are waiting for a more national database to be built, I think that that would be the best course of action. And I know that we actually have a, um, a few members of the Contra COVID team who is working on state specific information. And so those resources will be on our website as well so that you can find your particular state and, um, and read the guidelines there that can help guide your decision uh, to where and when to become vaccinated. And during those difficult times, um, you know, uh, a lot of families are going uh, through difficult financial situations, and our website also provides uh, social resources that you can access. That it's distributed by state as well, and available in other languages. If you if you'd like to to take a look at that, for example, you are likely eligible for the stimulus check. So please check our website. We have a lot of resources on how to register, how to get your stimulus check, because you know, this is a hard time. We need help. And, and we at Contra COVID wants to help you as well. Exactly. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think it's so important for us to, to be including those social resources because that's such an important part of, of our health that sometimes we don't realize. You know, we, I, I talked about before about how people are having trouble accessing, you know, um, certain clinics. Um, and, and for a lot of you know communities of color that you know are living in such like cramped, close conditions, a lot of the recommendations that were being put forth in the beginning of the pandemic um, weren't actually achievable for a lot of these people. And so, um, you know, it, right now while everyone's you know a lot of people are really hurting during this pandemic, it's really important to be able to address those different factors in their lives that are contributing to their health. Yeah. And if, if we want a more specific answer where to get the appointment information, I can talk about the Massachusetts website. So if you go to vaxfinder.mass.gov, you can find your appointment. So there are you know, appointments in several locations in the whole Massachusetts. So you can just put your city and then do your registration. There are mass vaccination sites, for example, here in Boston, there's at the Fenway Park, you know, there's, you know, now in pharmacies, they'll be starting to have vaccination campaigns. We're now at phase two of vaccination. So it's individuals age 75 plus, uh, 65 plus, two or more medical conditions, and also other workers such as educators, childcare workers, school staff, researchers, you know, health care uh, providers. And uh, we're gonna start phase three to the general public probably around April 2021. Yeah, that's very exciting to hear that it's gonna eventually reach the public very soon. Um, so thank you so much ladies for a wonderful and insightful discussion about the COVID-19 vaccine development, side effects, registration process, and also the equity issues involved with the whole process. Um, we hope you will join us for future episodes and feel free to reach out on our Contra COVID Facebook or Instagram which is at Contra COVID. And as everyone mentioned, we have some really helpful resources on our website, www.contracovid.com that have also been translated. And um, with that, we hope you all stay safe and healthy and we will talk to you at the next episode.